How y'all doing? Doing well. It is good to be back in this setting tonight. We had a wonderful month of the Fresh Fire preaching, uh, prophetic preaching for perilous times, and we are grateful for that, and we assure you that we will be doing that again very soon. Uh, but tonight, we're going to get back into uh, the Bible study series that uh, we were into before uh, the Fresh Fire series, and that has to do with the parables of Jesus. Uh, we said that there were, I think I kept saying that there were some 38 parables. I went back and looked at it. There are more than that. There are like 54 of them. Uh, we're not going to cover all 54. <clears throat> I know you said, I'm glad. Yeah, that's all right. Um, but, but there are uh, certain parables that we think are important. I believe the last time we were together, we looked at the parables dealing with lostness, which are found in the 15th chapter of Luke, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And we talked about the fact that when it came to the lost son, Jesus was making the point that the man had two sons and both sons were lost. One was obviously lost and one was less obviously lost, but both were lost nonetheless. Tonight, I want us to look at a different parable. I want us to look at Luke chapter 19. And we are going to focus on verses 11 through 27. But we always want to try to keep things in their context. So we're going to start with uh, the first verse of Luke chapter 19, even though the parable does not begin until later. Luke chapter 19. Then Jesus entered and walked through Jericho. There was a man there, his name Zacchaeus, the head tax man and quite rich. He wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. When Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, hardly believing his good luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumped. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? Zacchaeus just stood there a little stunned. He stammered apologetically, Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. I'm always amused by the way he says that. He doesn't say if I cheat. He says if I get caught cheating. Uh, uh, I, 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 I wonder about how that's written. Jesus said today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to find and restore the lost. <clears throat> now, what does this have to do with the parable that follows? Well, the parable that Jesus tells following this, he tells right on the heels of this incident because he did not want his disciples, or any of the others for that matter, to leave with a mistaken understanding as to the urgency of the coming of the kingdom of God. You have to understand, these disciples believed that when the Messiah came, and Jesus' disciples believed and were convinced that he was the Messiah, that when the Messiah came, that with his coming would be the coming of the kingdom, however they understood the kingdom. And they didn't understand the kingdom that Jesus was ushering into the world. They had their minds and their hearts fixed on a physical kingdom. They had their minds and their hearts fixed on a kingdom that was reminiscent of the kingdoms that currently existed in the world, particularly the Roman Empire. They thought that with the coming of Messiah that uh, 
the Roman uh, government would be overthrown, would be forced back to Rome, and Israel would once again be a free and independent state, an independent nation. And so they thought that with the coming of, of Messiah, that this ushering in of the kingdom was going to come quickly. And Jesus says to them, today is salvation day in this home. Well, now they really, okay, well, it's all about to happen right here and right now. And so to dispel that misunderstanding, he tells this story that talks about the fact that the kingdom might not come for a great while, but when it comes, you need to be ready. Now, most of us overlook this parable because it bears similarities to a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, Jesus tells a parable about uh, a a, a rich farmer, a a master, who leaves three sums of money uh, with three different servants. He leaves one with five talents, one with two talents, and one with one talent, and he goes away. And he comes back after a period of time, and the five-talent man produces five more, comes with the ten, and offers them to Jesus. The two-talent man comes with two more. I say offers them to Jesus, offers them to the master in the story. And and, and both of them are commended. The one-talent man comes back with the one talent that he had. He he had hidden it. He had put it away somewhere. He comes back with the one talent that he had, and the master condemns the man. He chastises the man. He ridicules the man because the man did not do anything with the talent that was given to him. And so when we read this story about the, what, what is commonly called the minas, and, and from the message version, it doesn't necessarily translate to minas, which is a sum of money. It just says some, a sum of money was given. Uh, when we read this parable, we think, well, this is just Luke telling the same parable, but it is not. First of all, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25 had a different goal altogether. It had nothing to do with the urgency of the kingdom. It had to do with proper stewardship, proper usage of that which has been placed in your care. Whatever God has given you, whether it be great or little in your mind, your responsibility is to use it to the best of your ability. The, 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 the one talent man is not condemned because he didn't uh, produce. He's condemned because he didn't even try. He took what God had given him and did nothing with it. I want you to notice that the five talent man and the two talent man, even though the five talent man had far more than the two talent man at the end, he had 10 talents, whereas the two talent man had four. Uh, they both received the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant, because they did the best that they could with what had been placed in their care. This parable is different, and its goal is different. This is not about stewardship. This is about the coming of the kingdom and what we are to do to be prepared for the coming of the kingdom, okay? Okay. He tells this parable on the heels of what happens with Zacchaeus, as we just said a moment ago, because when he says today is salvation day or today salvation has come, the disciples were thinking, well, that means that that, that now is the time and, and Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom and Rome is going to be overthrown and all of these things are going to happen. And Jesus wants them to get that out of their minds altogether. Don't worry about when. Paul says later on, years later, no one knows the day nor the hour when the Son of Man shall appear. We, we, we don't need to know when. What we need to do is recognize that whenever the kingdom comes, we need to be prepared for it. One of the distinctions between this parable and the Matthew parable is that in the Matthew parable, each person receives a different amount, talent, uh, is not talking about whether or not you can tap or whether or not you can sing. Okay, that, that, that's not the talent that he's talking about. Talent was a sum of money. So, so if you want to translate it, one got 
20 got, got $5,000, one got $2,000, one got $1,000. Okay? Help you? Any or none at all. I can't see you because the sun is in my eyes, so y'all got to say something. So I know y'all still sitting there. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. All right. In this parable, however, everyone receives the same amount. Starting with verse 11, while he had their attention and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time, an expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute. You see, do you see that? He told this story. There was once a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But first, he called ten servants together. Not three, ten. He called ten servants together. Gave them each a sum of money. If you read it from the King James Version, it says that he gives them each the same amount of money. It's called a mina. And instructed them, operate with this until I return. But the citizens there hated him, so they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this man to rule us. When he came back bringing the authorization of his rule, he called those ten servants to whom he had given the money to find out how they had done. The first said, Master, I doubled your money. He said, Good servant, great work. Because you've been trustworthy in this small job, I'm making you governor of ten towns. The second said, Master, I made a 50% profit on your money. He said, I'm putting you in charge of five towns. The next servant said, Master, here's your money, safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I know you have high standards and hate sloppiness and don't suffer fools gladly. He said, you're right that I don't suffer fools gladly. And you've acted the fool. Why didn't you at least invest the money in securities so I would have gotten a little interest on it? Then he said to those standing there, take the money from him and give it to the servant who doubled my stake. They said, but master, he already has doubled. He said, that's what I mean. Risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and end up holding the bag. As for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, clear them out of here. I don't want to see their faces around here again. You see, this is a far more complicated story than the one that's told in Matthew 25 with, with far different characters. The only similarity is that you hear reports from three different people. But in, in the Matthew parable, only three people receive something. In this parable, 10 people receive, we only hear from three. So we shouldn't overlook this parable because we think that it's just like the other one. It's very different in a number of ways. We told you when we started this series that in parables, Jesus uses uh, everyday examples in order to make uh, spiritual points that the people can understand, that, uh, that there is a parallel to everyone that's in the story. So let's look at the story again and see if we can see some of the parallels. He says, there was once a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. Who's the man? Jesus. Who's the authorizing authority that he's going back to? God. How's he going back there? He's going to die. All of this speaks to the crucifixion. And what happens in the interim between his crucifixion on that Friday and his resurrection on that Sunday? It's important that you understand who these people are. He leaves a sum of money to ten servants. Who are the ten servants? The disciples. The disciples represent the ten servants. Somebody's going to say, well, there were twelve disciples. Okay, he kept the story simple. So he, so he didn't say twelve. 
He said 10. But the 10 servants represent the disciples and all believers who were faithful to Jesus. All of those who had come to believe that he was the Messiah, that's who these 10 represent. He gave each of them a sum of money. What is that? What, what does the sum of money represent? The sum of money represents the value of the gospel message. I have given to each of you the gospel. What is his instruction to them? Operate with this until I come back, until I return. What is our responsibility as disciples of Christ? Our responsibility is to do the best that we can with the gospel that has been entrusted to our care. We have a very simple responsibility. As you go, make disciples. Our, our instruction has nothing to do with money. He uses money in the parable. But money, he uses money because most of us put a value on money that we don't put on anything else. Okay, so, 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 so he uses money because he knows that we value money. But the true treasure is not money. It's not monetary. It has nothing to do with worldly wealth. The true treasure is the gospel. I have given each of you. The, that's why in this parable, everyone gets the same thing. Not, not five and two and one. Everyone gets the same. Ain't but one gospel. That, that there ain't a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. There ain't a Roman Catholic gospel and a Baptist gospel and a Presbyterian gospel and a Church of God in Christ gospel. I know some of us like to think that there is. But there is one gospel message. There is but one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, must bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue must confess that Christ is the Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is but one gospel. So each of the believers receives the same thing. And they receive the same instruction. Operate. Move, act, utilize, employ. Do the best that you can with what I have given you until I return. He doesn't say I'm coming back next week. He doesn't say I'm coming back next month. He says until I return. When I was a boy, uh, uh, my mother would have to come pick me up from school. And, and sometimes she would say, I'm going to be late because she had to wait until she could leave work in order to come get me. She said, now, when I get here, you be right out here on this step. And I would ask, well, how long are you going to be? And she would say, if I don't come till November 32nd, <laughs> when I show up, you better be on this step. That was her way of saying it don't matter how long it takes. Y'all do know there's no such thing as Juvember. <laughs> right? Okay. Y'all got it. And they ain't, and they ain't but 31 days in, 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 in a month at the max. So her point was it doesn't matter. However long it takes, whenever I get here, your butt better be on this step. That was another way of telling her don't ask questions that I don't feel like being bothered with. Operate with this until I return. Then he throws in a but, verse 14. But the citizens there hated him. Who are the citizens? The citizens are Orthodox Judaism. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, ascetics, but ascetics hadn't existed right at this point. They come along later. Anyone who was a part of Orthodox 
Judaism. They, they are representative. They are represented by the citizens. And he says the citizens there hated him. Hated who? Didn't hate the king. Didn't hate the master. Didn't hate the one who was at headquarters. They hated the representative who had come from headquarters and was going back to headquarters. Jesus is saying they don't hate God. They hate me. And they hated him so much that they sent a commission. If this ain't like Baptist folk, I don't know what is. They sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this man over us. Here's the problem. Here's what Jesus is saying about this. He's saying that while the servants had received the gospel and were eager to do with the gospel, most of them anyway, were eager to do with the gospel what they could. They were eager to operate with this until I return. The citizens of the community, representative of Orthodox Judaism, opposed him, didn't want him. They didn't mind, I, I, I know I'm repeating myself, they didn't mind being ruled by the king, but they didn't like who the king sent. Jesus is saying this, there are a whole lot of folk right around you, a whole lot of Jewish folk right around you, a whole lot of sons and daughters of Israel right around you who love God, but hate me. Now that's a problem. Je Jesus wants his disciples to know that's a problem. Because if you hate me, you hate God. Because I have come from God. I was sent by God. I have authorization from God. And in fact, I am God. John 14. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He says this in response to a question that one of his disciples, Philip, asked. He says, show us the Father and, 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 and we'll be okay. Show us the Father and we'll be fine. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So how is it that you can love the Father and hate the Son? How is it that you can Love God in heaven, but hate God in your midst. Here, 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 here's some, something for you to think about as to why. Let, let's speculate for a minute as to why they would love the Father, but not love the Son. The Son was the embodiment of all that the Father wanted them to aspire to be. And let me ask you something. I ain't gonna ask you about now because now you ought to be grown and you ought to act like grown folk. When you were children, didn't you hate the kid that, 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 that just could do everything right that you couldn't do? And you ain't gotta be quiet, you know you did. <laughs> I went to school with folk who, t teachers at, at the schools I went to graded on the curve, and I thank God for the curve. <laughs> curve got me out of school with a decent GPA. I, I would have gotten out anyway, but, 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 but with a decent GPA, curve got me out of school. But every now and then, you'd have somebody, some smart aleck, some know-it-all, who would set the curve so high that it didn't help me at all. You know, if, if, if you got an exam 
and, 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 and it was out of 100, but the highest score was 80. Well, that means everybody's score jumped up 20 points. And sometimes I needed all 20 of them points in order to get through. But, but, but if you had some smart aleck know-it-all who scored a 98 on, on, on the test, and the curve was only two points. Two points didn't help me. None. And then I listened to that smart aleck say, I knew the answer to that. I don't care what you knew. You done messed me up. I didn't, I didn't like folk who knew everything. Part of the problem that they had with Jesus is that Jesus was God in their midst. Jesus was the personification of God's holiness in their midst. They could no longer pretend like they were doing what God wanted them to do because Jesus was there setting the curve. And they weren't meeting the curve that Jesus set. Jesus said crazy stuff like, as I have loved you, so should you love one another. Jesus said crazy things like, forgive our debts as we have already forgiven our debtors. Jesus said, turn the other cheek and walk the second mile and pray for them that use you and persecute you. If you want to be first, make yourself last. And they couldn't get away with acting like they were doing what God wanted because Jesus was setting the curve and they couldn't get any points. So they didn't like Jesus. They hated Jesus because he was the personification of God's holiness. They hated Jesus because Jesus had authority that they wanted to have. Authority that they had before Jesus showed up. There was a group within, with, within Orthodox Judaism called the Sanhedrin Council. The Sanhedrin Council had to be subject to the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire allowed the Sanhedrin Council to pretty much do whatever they wanted to do as long as they kept the peace among the people. As long as there were no riots, as long as there were no uprisings, as long as there was no violence, as long as there was no shooting or no stabbing or anything like that, then, then, then the Sanhedrin Council could set whatever standard they wanted. They were de facto God within the Jewish community, within the Hebrew community. But here comes Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just quietly personify the presence of God. Jesus openly challenges the Sanhedrin Council and their authority and their tradition. Jesus. Why don't your disciples wash like the tradition says they're supposed to wash before they eat? It's because they got sense enough to know that it's not what comes, goes into a man that makes him dirty, but it's what comes out of a man that makes him dirty. And they didn't like that answer because he was talking about them. He, he goes to a Pharisee's house and, and, and he sees the different folk there clamoring to sit at the head of the table because where you sat at the table was an indicator of how important you were in the community. And Jesus says, don't be clamoring to get to the head of the table. He says, put yourself at the foot of the table. He says, it's a whole lot better to be at the foot and be asked up than to be at the head and be asked down. They didn't like that either. One fella, a guy by the name of Simon, uh, who was a Pharisee, had leprosy. And leprosy at that time was considered to be an incurable disease. And yet Jesus cured Simon of his leprosy. And, and, and in gratitude, Simon said, well, I'm going to have you over to my house for dinner, along with some of my good, upstanding Pharisee <laughs> friends. And, 
And, and, and while Jesus was there in Simon's house, a woman with a, 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 a disreputable uh, a persona comes up behind Jesus and, 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 and she anoints him with expensive ointment and she wets his feet with the tears that fell from her eyes and then she dries his feet with the hairs of her head. And Simon, who just this morning couldn't even come into his own house because he was a leper, was indignant and whispering with the other Pharisees, he can't be the Messiah because if he was the Messiah, he wouldn't let a woman like that touch him. And Jesus said, Simon, you ought to be the first one jumping, screaming, shouting, glory, glory, hallelujah. But, but, but now that your situation has been fixed, help me, Holy Ghost. Now, now that your situation has been fixed, how quickly have we turned to where we're judgmental about somebody else? They didn't like Jesus because Jesus wasn't quietly acting like God. He was vocally acting like God. And so they did what every good Baptist does. <laughs> they called a meeting. And somebody sat down and wrote out a petition. And then they got everybody in the town to sign the petition. And then they took the petition to the king. And they said, we, we ain't got no problem with you. We don't want him. We don't want him to come back. Well, what happens? It says in verse 15, when he came back, bringing the authorization. Now, don't just run by that. When he came back with the authorization. You know what that means? That means that the king got the petition, took it from him. And did what you and I do with a piece of paper that's got something written on it that we don't want. <laughs> Tore it up, threw it away, acted like it didn't exist. When he came back with the authorization of his rule, I want you to see something else. King. He doesn't even bother with the folk who opposed him. He goes to the ones who were supporters. Mm -hmm. he, 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 he completely bypasses the one, oh, let him who hath ears hear. Let me tell you something. Part of our problem is that we let too many of the wrong folk occupy too much of our minds and our time. Folk ain't important until you make them important. Folk don't just automatically become important. They become important because you allow them to become important. You allow them to whisper in your ear and to get your attention to the point that you can't do what you're supposed to be doing because you're worried about what they going Say, can I tell you something? There's going to always be a they. There is going to always be a they. If you waiting for 100% approval before you do anything, you ain't going to never do nothing. On this one, take, 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 take a, 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 a lesson from secular stuff. Do you know that in secular politics, all you got to do is have 50% plus one? Yeah. Yeah. And you win? Yeah. You don't need 100%. No. You want to know why Donald Trump don't worry about how Negroes feel about him? He don't need y'all. He don't need y'all to win. He proved it in 16. Although he got some crazy folk to vote for him. And yeah, keep that on the tape. I want them to hear that. He got some crazy folk. Crazy Negro folk to vote for him. 
But he, he knew he didn't need Negro support to win. In fact, he didn't even need the popular vote to win. He lost the popular vote by three million votes. But you know where he is right now. He's in the White House. And you know how little he cares? Do you know how tired I am of hearing everybody being upset by what stupid thing Donald Trump says? Every time I turn on my TV, I'm shocked and appalled that the president, he been doing this now for three years. You still shocked and appalled? He don't care. He ain't thinking about you. The way my grandmother used to put it, I ain't studying about you. I, I'm assuming she meant studying, but I wasn't going to correct her. I ain't studying about you. Part of our problem, part of the church's problem, part of the individual Christian's problem is that we allow opposition to stifle us, to stagnate us, to cripple us from doing what God told us to do. Jesus says that when the man came back, he came back with authorization from the king. And since he has authorization from the king, he ain't studying about what the opposers think. Clearly the petition didn't do the trick. Somebody don't like you. Whoever, whoever it is, you know who they are. You ain't crazy. Somebody don't like you. Somebody right now is plotting on you. Don't let the fact that they don't like you stop you. Don't let the fact that they plotting on you cause you to lose one moment of sleep. You know why? Because you have authorization from headquarters. And that, that authorization from headquarters supersedes and overrules everything that the opposition can do. Listen to how Jesus tells the story. He says when he comes back with the authorization, he doesn't even reference the enemies. The first thing he does is go to the supporters. And he wants a report from them as to what they have done with what they have been given. Now, listen to the report. The first fellow comes up and he says, I made 100% on the investment. That means that he doubled what was given. He, he, he doubled the, the amount of money that was given. And, 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 and he receives a commendation, well done good and faithful servant, because you have done well with little. I'm going to make you the governor. I'm going to make you, make you the overseer of 10 cities. In other words, Jesus is saying that for those who are willing to do what I have asked you to do, I have more that's waiting for you. One reason why we can't get more is because we won't do with what we got. Do you know that God has good stuff waiting for you? Yeah. Every Sunday when, when, when we take up the offering, I talk about the fact that, 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 that the scripture says, prove me now herewith. If I will not open the window of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. What, 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 what does that mean? That means that if you give the tithe, which is what is being referenced to, bring all the tithe to the storehouse and prove, that means test me. If, if you ain't sure about what I'm saying, put me to the test. I'm willing to let you put me to the test. Try me if you, that's what prove me means. Try me if you want. You bring your tithe and watch. I'll pour out blessings in such abundance that you ain't going to have room enough to receive it. But here's the thing. 
you don't get the abundant blessings poured out of the window of heaven if you ain't done nothing with what he gave you to begin with. Jesus says that the first report was, I took what you gave me and I doubled it. I, 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 I made 100% on the investment. And he says, well, there's more waiting for you. The next one comes and he says, well, I didn't quite do as well as this guy did, but I did do 50%. I, 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 I made what you had plus half. And he said, well, I'm going to give you five cities to rule over. In other words, Jesus is suggesting that, 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 that what you receive is proportionate to what you have done. God is a proportionate God. There are some things where God is tit for tat. Where, 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 where he wants exactly what he is given. For example, I've, I've said this all the time. When it comes to love, when it comes to agape, God ain't proportionate. God expects you to love with the same love that he has shown towards you. That's what Jesus says. As I have loved you, so should you love one another. That, 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 that's not proportionate. But there are things that are proportionate. As you do well, the better you do, the more you will be given. If you do well, you'll get something. If you do better, you'll get better than something. That ought to be good news for us. Because what it means is you have a certain degree of control out of what you get. You, 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 all y'all want to be in charge, right? Y'all can wait to get out of your mama's and daddy's house so you could do what you wanted to do. All, all y'all want, want to be in charge. Well, 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 here Jesus says, this is the ultimate charge. As you do, so shall you be blessed. If you do a little something, you'll get a little blessing. If you do a better something, you'll get a better blessing. But watch out, because the third fellow comes along. And the third fella ain't done nothing. And, and, and when the third fella does nothing, that's what he gets. Nothing. In fact, read the text. He gets less than nothing. He says, well, here's, here's what you gave me. Safe and sound. Do you see how he's trying to picture this thing? I have what you gave me, and it's safe and sound. It's, it's just the way you gave it to me. And you see, I do want you to understand, I do have a reason for this. It's because I know what kind of fella you are. And, 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 and I know that you don't suffer fools greatly. And so I was afraid that if I put this to use and lost it, that you would be upset with me. Are we allowing fear to keep us from doing what God has called us to do? Fear reveals itself in more than one way. Sometimes fear reveals itself in, 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 in our actually running and hiding in fright. And sometimes fear presents itself in concerns over failure. And the concern of failure prevailing over the duty and the responsibility to which we have been charged. Jesus wants us to understand that if you allow your fear of failure to prevail over your responsibility to be faithful to your charge, then you have lost before you even started. You can't be afraid to fail. You can't do it. Not in, not, not in be who God would have you to be. 
Story is told in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles where Paul goes to Athens, Greece, and Paul shares the gospel on a place called Mars Hill where some of the great philosophers and thinkers of history have spent their time exchanging ideas and thoughts with one another. And, and, and Paul was doing pretty well in sharing the gospel of Christ with them until he got to one little sentence that they had a problem with. And that sentence had to do with Jesus being raised from the dead. These highly intelligent, intellectual people didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They believed that that was myth. They believed that that did not happen, could not happen. And the scripture actually says that when he brought up the resurrection from the dead, they laughed at him. They laughed. You ever been laughed at? It's not a good feeling when folk laugh at you. They laughed. And they said, all right, we've heard enough. We don't need to hear no more. Now, 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 Luke, who wrote Acts, who also writes this, said he, he tried to put the best thing on it he could. He said some believed. He said there were a few who did believe. But he said most everybody else laughed him right out of the room, laughed him right off the hill, laughed him right out of their presence. Can you imagine what it feels like when you're walking away and you still hear folk laughing about you, laughing at you, talking about you? We wasted all our time with this fool talking about somebody going to be raised from the dead. What did he do after that? Read the next chapter. He goes on to Corinth and he preaches the gospel there. Do you know why? Because he knew that his responsibility to the gospel was greater than his fear of being ridiculed of being laughed at, of being dismissed, of being thought of in a poor negative fashion. We cannot allow our fear of being misunderstood, of being disliked, of being ridiculed, of being mocked, to control our response to the gospel. Remember, they were given a charge. Take what I have given you and put it to use until I come back. The first two had done that. By the time you get to this fellow, he says, well, I, I got it, but I ain't done nothing with it. Jesus got a problem with folk who have something, but don't do nothing with it. He says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden under the foot of men. In other words, for salt to be useful, you got to put it to use. You are the light of the world, but it doesn't do any good to take a light and put it under a bushel where nobody can see it. If you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you're not doing anything with it, if you're not sharing the gospel with others, if you're not showing people through your living and through your conversation and through your engagement of service what it means to be a Christian, then you have allowed the fear of what others think about you to prevail. And you have failed before you ever got started. Now, I need to tell you this while, while, while I'm on the subject of this fellow. He lied. Okay? He lied. He says that he feared the master and that because he feared him, because he was so exacting, he wouldn't do anything at all. In other words, it's better for me to do nothing than to risk by doing something. 
What's the master's response? I would have rathered you risk and done something than to do nothing at all. You do know that one day you're going to have to stand before the Lord. And you're going to have to give an account. I want to be very clear. This ain't got nothing to do with whether or not you go to heaven or hell. Because heaven or hell is not for those who do certain things. Heaven and hell are for those who believe certain things. Whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But you are going to have to give an account of your stewardship with regard to the rewards of heaven. Now, here's something that's going to be controversial to some folk, but it shouldn't be because it's what the Bible says. There's a hierarchy in heaven. You know how I know? Because the one who doubled his investment got more than the one who did a 50% return on his investment. And the one who did the 50% return on his investment got more than the one who gave no return on the investment at all. I want you to see something else. Unlike the parable in Matthew chapter 25, the slave, the, the, the servant doesn't lose his life. He loses his reward. You know, in Matthew chapter 25, it talks about uh, put him out. Put him out where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You don't see that here. What he does say is take the gift that I gave him from him and give it to the one who produced even more. And the people who saw it got upset. Really? He already got so much. You know why he got so much? Because he was willing to risk much. You want to know why we don't have? Because we're not willing to risk. And when we do risk, we don't do it with the right intention. And I got Bible to back that up. Turning your Bibles to James. Look at James chapter 4. Starting with verse 1 to keep it in its context. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting his own way. King James Version puts it this way. You have not because you asked not. And when you do ask, you don't get it because you've asked amiss with selfish intentions. And because you don't believe that God will do what you have asked him to do. Jesus says that, 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 that when, when the representative, when, when the prince comes back and he's now king, when he comes back with the authorization, he's now king. He says he comes back to get an account from his servants, from the ones that he had entrusted with his gospel. Remember when I asked you what, what, what the money represented? It represented the gospel. What did you do? with what I gave you. And for the one who did nothing, what he had was taken from him and given to the one who had the most. Now, and I'm, I'm ready to go home now. Now, after he has dealt with his disciples, 
He then turns his attention back to the enemies. Did you see that? Jesus doesn't come back. The, 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 the prince turned king doesn't come back worrying about the enemies. He comes back worrying about the supporters. Because the problem ain't with the enemies. The problem is with the supporters. I said this at 12 o'clock. We spend all of our time looking for the enemy on the outside. And that's where we make our mistake. Because the enemy is never on the outside. The enemy is within. Within the confines. Do you know who's giving you the most hell? The one that's within. Do you know who's causing you the most grief? Do you know who's talking about you all the time? Don't tell her what I told you. But do, do, do you know who's doing that? It ain't folk on the outside. It's folk on the inside. So before Jesus even concerns himself with folk on the outside, he settles the affairs with the folk on the inside. Then verse 27. As for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, clear them out. I don't want to see their faces around here again. What is that a reference to? They going to hell. They going to hell. He's saying, he's saying I, I, I don't even have to worry with them because they have already sealed their own fate. You worried about folk who already on their way to hell. And you're going to let them drag you to hell with them. Follow the example of Jesus. Don't concern yourself with folk that are already on their way to hell. Oh, I know that we're supposed to be evangelistic and we're supposed to be concerned about everybody. And you should be concerned about everybody. But you know what? I ain't going to let drowning folk cause me to drown. I don't know how to swim. Never did know how to swim. But when I was young and stupid, I would jump into the deep end of the pool. And I would try to glide across from one side of the pool to the other. I could hold my breath long enough to get from one side of the pool to the other. One day I jumped into the deep end of the pool and I ran into somebody in the middle of the pool and it stopped all my momentum. And, and there I was in the deep end of the pool and I couldn't go anywhere and I started going down. Fortunately, there was somebody there who knew how to swim and knew how to rescue me and they came to where I was and I grabbed on to them for dear life and I, if, if he had let me, I would have pulled him down with me. Do you know what he did when he first got to me? He took me, I had hair back then, took me by the head and pushed me down <laughs> under the water. And then pulled me back up and said, don't fight. I'm going to get you out of here. And he carried me on to the other side of the pool. And I got out and everything was fine. But here's the thing. If he had not been firm, the risk was that I was going to cause him to drown trying to save me. I believe in evangelism. I believe in reaching out to the lost. But I ain't letting lost folk send me to hell. I ain't worrying about lost folk. I ain't losing a bit of sleep over lost, hellacious folk because I know whose I am. I know to whom I belong. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have delivered unto him against that day. There might be someone here tonight after having been a part of this Bible study experience. We want to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. We're going to stand together and sing a verse of Just As I Am. And if there is one, we invite you to come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy 
my blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me come to thee O Lamb of God I come I repeat after me please the Lord bless you the Lord keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace Amen. Y'all have a good evening.